Father, uh, please be with us now. Um, Father, we, we long to stand face to face before you as we've just sung. How we long for that day and we look forward to that day. But as we await that day, we know that you are working in us now. I pray that you would work through your word by the power of your spirit here in this room as we gather um, and with the minis as well as they learn more of who you are. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Um, so, just a heads up. Today, we're going to have to get through a lot because a couple of weeks ago I had COVID and it meant we had to skip something and it basically meant that we've squashed today together. So we're going to have to work quite hard. We're going to be reading Genesis 20 and 21. This is a huge chunk, um, but we'll get there. I think we'll be all right. So I'd ask you to take up a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, and we're going to work through it together. So uh, we'll, do, we'll do it in little bits so you, you don't have to read the whole thing and then you won't, you'll forget it all. So we'll do it in little chunks. Um, but have it, have it in front of you as we come to it. But as we start, this is, the, this is the big kind of thought that I want us to have as we come to, to this passage. It was, it's quite hard grappling with such a, a big chunk, but I think um, it made me think of this. So today, I think, the, the culture we live in today, we love to think and have protection. It's become really important to us. We particularly want to protect things that really matter to us. It's a natural human trait. We like security. We like assurances. We like guarantees. And the bigger the guarantee and the protection, the more people are willing to commit and trust to something. I find this a lot as you kind of get older. Um, protection becomes more and more important. As I entered middle age, my wife started talking about life insurance. I'm like, wow. Um, so we, we took the plunge. A few weeks ago, we looked at some life insurance and we took it out. And you kind of enter your details and it then generates this number and says, this is how much you're worth. And I was like, okay. Um, and I was like, oh, surely. I, I was kind of expecting at least if I, with my body, we could buy a house in London. <laughs> Turns out, no. Um, <laughs> my life is worth something like 160,000 pounds, which I think you can buy a garage for, possibly a parking space, I don't know. Uh, but then the thing that riled me up was my wife was, my wife was worth more. And I was like, what? I reckon it's because she's a bit younger. No, I, to be fair, she is probably worth a lot more than I am. But um, anyway, we got it. But the key, the key thing was this. In the process, you want to make sure you get insurance with somebody who's a valid, good company. You want it to be guaranteed. We want to make sure that if something does go wrong, the company would act as a good guarantor. They would make sure that my family is looked after. So we had to look around carefully. We had to look at lots of reviews to know if this was the smart, right thing to do. And these past few weeks, we've been looking at these great promises of God, of these I wills. And these are huge. These matter more than life insurance because this is life-changing for us. Not just for now in this world, but into eternity. It's life-changing. For, for us, for Abraham's descendants, for the rest of the peoples in this world. And when somebody makes such a life-changing promise, we want to make sure it's guaranteed really well. It's protected. It's like asking if the guarantor of the insurance company will ever go bust and not follow through with their promise. That's what we sort of looking at in these chapters today. We've seen this promise of God saying to Abraham, look, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a great nation and a blessing. But at this point here in the story, in this journey, there's still no son, there's still no land. So where are Abraham and his descendants going to go? Where, where are they going to live? How is this going to all pan out? How is God going to guarantee this promise is actually going to happen? That is what we're going to look at this afternoon. And the way it works is we've got these three different scenes 
And what these scenes are doing, they're sort of tying up the storyline that we've seen so far. It's a bit like when you watch a series. Sometimes um, there's a good series called This Is Us out there following these triplets. There are three different storylines, and constantly you're kind of tying those stories over. That's sort of what's going on here. We're tying up those storylines. And in each scene, we're going to see a major threat to God's promise. But then this is what we see. We see how God protects his promise and his people. That is what we're going to see this afternoon. So as we work through, there's quite a lot to go through. If you forget everything else, just remember this, that God is the great protector of his promise and his people. That is what we're going to look at. And through that, that gives us proof that God is the one who is worth trusting in with our lives. So let's dive into chapter 20. Um, So chapter 20, I'm going to read the whole thing because it will make more sense to you. Um, So let's dive in. Genesis chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Aram in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Great. Right, now this first scene is actually a pretty ugly scene. Um, You probably picked that up as I was reading through it. Let me tell you what we've got to so far. Abraham, remember chapter 18, we saw Abraham as this terrific host. He was a great host running around getting all this food for God and his two angels who came to visit them. And there, he and his wife, Sarah, heard the great promise that they would have a son. It was a glorious time. And then we saw in chapter 19 last week, the great character of God through that that harrowing scene of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God is seen as the perfect judge who leans towards mercy. Abraham has seen so much of who God is. He's been hearing his promises throughout. And then we get to chapter 20, and you sort of go, what are you doing? If you've been with us since the start of the series, early on, this might remind remind you of another scene we heard about. It's a deja vu. 
Genesis chapter 12. Abraham has said exactly the same thing before. After he'd heard God's initial promise, a famine comes, a threat comes to him. So Abraham runs away to Egypt for shelter, and then when he gets there, he sees the people, he gets scared, and he says, my wife Sarah is not really my wife, she's my sister. <laughs> I actually preached that sermon in Genesis 12, and I thought, oh, maybe I could just redo it here. Um, but I'm not going to, so. But what do we see here? Verse 2, Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Red light siren. Hold on, Abe. You said that about your wife before. You got into a right old mess that time. What are you doing? Why are you doing this again? He says Sarah is his sister again. She gets taken into the king's palace again. Sarah is abandoned by her husband again. Abraham is now without his wife again. And the promise of God is in danger of jeopardy yet again. What are you doing? Why is this happening? It's that ever-present threat of doubt. That is the first threat that we see, the threat of doubt. One of the biggest threats to God's promise is doubt. See, Abraham's whole life in these past few years that we've been observing have been built on the foundation of God's promise. God called him out from his father's house to this new promised land. That is why he left his home. That is why he moved everything in his family, because of God's promise. But when pressures come from the culture and the times, when we look at people and we start to fear them of what they might think of us, how they might act towards us. And trust me, those pressures will always come. It's like waves crashing against rocks. It will challenge us and challenge us and challenge our foundation. And in those moments, there are two ways to respond. You can respond in trust of the foundation that you built your life upon. For Abraham, he could continue to keep his eyes fixed on God's promise and keep trusting in him where he continues to have this big, far-reaching view of God, remembering everything he's done and everything he's doing in his life. This sort of trust keeps your focus upwards towards God and outwards. Or he can respond with doubt. When you start to doubt, is God really going to pull through? Doubt makes your focus start to shrink. It makes you retreat. It makes you fall back. It makes you lose confidence. And all of a sudden, your focus shrinks back all on yourself, and it becomes self-absorbed. Try, um, try and imagine a balloon. Uh, let's call it the trust balloon. When, when this balloon is blown up and it's full of trust, it's secure, it's big. You can see it. If I'm holding it up here, you can all see it. But as soon as that tiny hole of doubt starts to creep in, and it starts to make that fizzle sound, and it starts to shrink and shrink, and the circle gets smaller and smaller until it just shrivels up in my hand. That is what is going on here with Abraham. Because of doubt, Abraham has started to lose sight of everything that God has shown him. All he can see is himself. He's even lost sight of his wife, metaphorically and literally. As the, and as this balloon starts, the, the, the trust balloon, if you want to call it that, as that starts to shrivel up, we start to see the shriveled ugliness of the human heart. See, Abimelech comes. In verse 9, he says, You've done things to me that should never be done. He confronts and challenges Abraham. Why did you do this, he says in verse 10. And Abraham says four things that I think are really revealing and really ugly. Here's the first thing. He makes assumptions. This is the sort of thing where you, you know when you say, I, I just thought, I just thought. See, at the start of verse 11, Abraham replied, I said to myself, I just thought. 
I just thought that they didn't fear God, and I feared for my life, so I just thought this would be fine to just blend in and stay safe. It's like when we say, I just thought it'd be easier if they just didn't know I was a Christian, so that there's less tension, there's less confrontation or hindrance for my relationships or my career. I just thought it'd be okay to put myself in that situation with those people because that's what everyone else does. There is that constant danger in our minds. When we start losing sight of God and his promises, we slip into thinking, well, I just thought it'd be okay. Here's the second thing. He twists the truth. This is a sort of thing when you say, well, technically speaking, see, verse 12 is revealed that Sarah is his half-sister. We don't have time to go into that. It seemed to be okay in those times. Later on, it's not in the Bible. But it's a half-truth that he says about her being his sister. But you can see his language, verse 12, besides, she really is. He's saying, technically, I didn't really lie. He's defending his position. Trust me, as soon as I say to my wife, technically, it never goes down well. Because what does it show? It shows that I've already got really close to the line. And I'm just trying to find ways to defend my position. To find my way out of it. See, technically, I didn't get angry at my wife and my kids. I just said things a bit louder and a bit quicker. You think, Mike, come on. Technically, I didn't sidestep a question about my faith. Or I didn't deny that God expects us to live in a certain way. I, I just remained silent. So you start to justify your actions, just like Abraham's doing here, by twisting or hiding parts of the truth. Convincing yourself that it's okay. It's like a, it's like a game. How close can you get to the danger zone? What's that game? Um, the wolf thing. You know, what, what time is it, Mr. Wolf? Is that the one? That's the English version. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a Korean version. Oh, you probably, if you've seen Squid Game, it might be in there. Um, terrible translation. Red light, green light. It's a terrible translation. But, but it's, like, it's, it's not a game. With God, it's not a game. It is not a game of how close can you get to the danger line and say, technically, I didn't. Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount makes this really clear. He destroys these half-baked categories. If you lust, then you've committed adultery. If you anger, you've committed murder. Abraham is in dangerous territory here. Here's the third thing he does. This is when it starts to get really ugly. He blames God. Do you see that in verse 13? And when God had made me wander from my father's household. Hang on a second. God promised you this wonderful promise, and you were like, yes, I'll go, God. He didn't make you wander around. He's called you to a promised land to say, I'm going to make you a great nation. But it's like, so he's blaming God. He's saying, well, God's pulled me out of my father's house and he's got me into this mess. If only God hadn't. God, if only you hadn't put me in this situation. If you hadn't called me to London to live in this area, to hang out with this people, with this job, I wouldn't have done this. Here's the fourth thing. He manipulates others. He then drags his wife into it. Look at how he carries on in verse 13. I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Now, how do you expect him to finish that sentence? By spending time together, by going on lovely dinner dates together, on holiday together, by cooking for each other, by keeping each other company. And this word for love is the covenant love that God speaks of between him and his people. This is the deepest love in the Bible. And this is what he says. This is how you can show show love to me. Everywhere you go, tell people that I'm your brother. What? It's like when you ask your spouse or your friend or someone you know, you start influencing them to cover up the wrong that you're doing. 
That is what Abraham's doing to Sarah. It's okay. This is the way you can show love to me. If you love me, you'll just let me do this. Or you'll join me in the way that I live. Sounds like borderline gaslighting to me. See, this is really, it is really ugly, actually. As I was reading this, Abraham, what are you doing? His viewing circle has shrunk. He's lost sight of God. He's lost sight of his wife. He's forgotten the faithful, the merciful, the perfect judge, the God most high, the almighty. He has lost sight of him. And this leads him to do some ugly things to try and protect himself at the expense of his wife and even of God. His heart is like that shriveled balloon, ugly with sin. And this shouldn't surprise us. This is exactly like the first humans, like Adam. If you remember back then, in the, early on, when he forgot about God's promises and goodness, and then God came to confront him, he acted in pretty much the same way. Adam said, I just, I just thought it was some fruit that my wife gave me. Technically, I didn't choose to eat it. She just gave it to me to eat. And then he actually uses these words, that woman you put here with me. That's pretty stark for blaming God. And then he drags Eve through it, blaming her for everything. It's ugly. And I find it so easy to look at Abraham going, oh, mate, you are so bad, until I started to reflect on it and I realized that is the nature of our hearts. That is what I'm like. When we get exposed, when our foundations get shaken through doubt, when our foundations are about God and who he is and his promises are shaken, we start to get self-absorbed and prickly. It shows the ugliness of our hearts. See, if you're not following Jesus yet this afternoon and you're here for the first time, you're really welcome. But I wonder if you've experienced something like this before as well. You might have experienced this when your foundations that you've been building your life on, on your career or your relationships, have been shaky. And when doubts start to creep in, have you found that your heart starts to shrivel and shrink in the same way? That you become self-absorbed and defensive and you start to see the ugliness of your own heart revealed? That starts to cause mess in your relationships with people around just like it does here. But this is the beauty of the story. This is the beauty of God, because this is where God takes us in this story. That is what I want all of us to see here. God shows us why he can be trusted. Despite what Abraham does, despite what goes on in our hearts, God steps into the mess to show that he is the one who protects his promise and his people. That is who God is. That is, his foundation is unshakable. You remember back in Genesis 15 when he cut this covenant with Abraham and he said, it's all on me. That is what he's showing right here. See, Abraham's doubt and his actions have again put the promise in great jeopardy. Sarah, his wife, who is part of the promise, is now with Abimelech, this foreign king. He's a stranger to God's promise. There is now a risk that a son born to Sarah will not be Abraham's. That is a real-life threat. But in this, God does not remain silent. He steps into the mess. Do you see how he intervenes? As soon as Abraham says, she is my sister, verse 3, God comes to Abimelech. He doesn't hold back. You're as good as dead. Let me show you what's gone wrong here. Abraham didn't tell you, but let me show you. He warns him in verse 7. He says, but if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. This is a huge threat from God. It seems like he also puts a disease on Abimelech. If you look at verse 17, it says, And God healed Abimelech 
And so God was using that to defend Sarah. See, Abimelech is one of the main threats, the object of threat to God's promise. He's a king. He has the power to take Sarah to be his wife. And yet Abimelech succumbs in utter fear of God. He goes to his officials the next day in verse 8 and says, hey guys, this is what happened when we encountered Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And they tremble in fear. And the amazing thing is, God doesn't go after Abimelech because he's saying you've done wrong to Sarah and Abraham. He says it because you've wronged me. In verse 6, God says, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. This isn't wrong just against Abraham and Sarah, but it's against God himself because of what is happening to his promise, to his people. Here is God stepping in where Abraham had so failed. Here is God who is stepping in to act as the husband should have acted for his bride, as a father does for his child. Here is God showing his care and protection for his promised children. See, despite Abraham's mistrust and, and doubts that had caused a huge threat on the promise, despite the mess he gets into, God steps in to say, my promise will not and cannot fail. I will. That is the God we worship. That is the Christian God. See, when doubts come, it's easy for our hearts to shrink. Our viewing circles diminish. But in those times, God is crying out to you, saying, you know what? I know what your hearts are like. That is why you don't trust in yourself, but you trust in me. Don't build your foundations on anything else but me and my promise. Because look at what I'm doing for Abraham and Sarah. Remember and see how I'm protecting my promise. How I'm protecting them against Abimelech. This is why you can trust me. Rest in me. Lean on me. Because I am doing this. I am going to bring this blessing, this land, this nation that I promised to Abraham is going to happen. And we see it starting to be hinted at here in this passage. Because Abimelech, out of fear of God, what does he do? He then goes on to bless Abraham and Sarah. Do you see how he provides so much possessions? In verse 14, he brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. He pays money out of repentance to Sarah, admitting he's done wrong and he wants to cover her shame. And in verse 15, he says to Abraham, my land is before you, live wherever you like. There is a hint of land that is to come. This is the wonderful thing about God. In Genesis 12, he said that all peoples will be, will be blessed through Abraham. Abimelech, at this point in time, he's not, he's not part of the promised people of God. But we see a hint of this blessing of his promise coming about. As Abraham prays for Abimelech in verse 17, God blesses Abimelech and allows his wife and his and the, and the women there, to bear children. See, this is the fullness of God's grace being revealed. Abraham is going to be the one who brings about blessing to all nations and peoples who come to fear God. People like Abimelech, and he's starting to experience that blessing. God is there to protect his promise in full. Not only that Abraham would inherit a land, a nation, and the blessing of God's promise, but that he would also be the father and blessing to many peoples and nations. See, if you're here this afternoon and you, you wouldn't say you're following Jesus yet and you're not sure about Christian things, if you feel like you're outside of God's promise at this moment, then look at Abimelech. Look at how God blesses him, how we see the hint of blessing that is to come, the promise that God will bless all peoples through Abraham. That includes you. So come and build your foundation 
of your life on God's promise, on his great I will that doesn't fade, that doesn't shrink, that doesn't fail, no matter what we do. Others of us sitting here this afternoon might feel like that little hole is starting to form in your trust balloon as we feel that pressure around us. Our view of God and trust in his promise may feel like it's beginning to shrink. Is God's promise true? Can I trust him? He says that in him there is eternal life, that I'll be a part of a raw priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. That there will come a day when we will laugh and there will be no more tears as we stand face to face. How can I really trust that? See, when in doubt, don't look inwards to yourself, but look to God. If you're finding the pressures of the world squeezing in on you, if you're overridden with guilt, look at what our God is like. Look at our God who steps into the mess of our human lives to intervene to say, yes, I'm coming to protect my promise and my people. I will make it happen. Because just as God steps in to protect Sarah and Abraham, to protect his promise, he's going to step in to the mess of humanity, himself in human flesh, to say, I'm coming to protect protect my promise once and for all. Despite the fact that you think you might jeopardize it through your failings, through your self-absorbed sin, God says, no, I will make sure as he comes to die on a cross for you. As the great descendant of Abraham and Isaac comes to protect his people from the very wrath of God that is deserved for self-absorbed sin, our ugliness of our hearts, he takes that on so that God may call us his children. The very children of Abraham from now into eternity. Jesus says, just trust me, I'm, I'm coming, I'm protecting this promise, I'm protecting my people, will you trust me in that? So take heart in your moments of doubt. Here's the second thing, here's the second threat. It's the mocking of God's promise. So at the end of chapter 20, we saw how Abimelech's wife and the female slaves there were allowed to bear children. It starts to hint at what is to come because there you start asking the question, okay, hang on, what about Sarah? She still has no son. And then we read chapter 21. Let me read verses 1 to 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son. Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So here's the, here is the pinnacle of God's promise. There's been so much tension surrounding the birth of the son. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And this could only happen by the grace of God. See, in these verses, three times it says, verse 1, just as God had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. At the end of verse 2, at that very time God had promised him, there's this echo of God doing what he said, of promising. Here is God fulfilling the most incredible part of the promise yet by bringing a son to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And through that, they have this deep joy of laughter. Here is proof, big proof that God will make his promise happen. But just as that promised son is born, then comes another threat. It's a threat of mocking God's promise. Here we have the interaction of two sons, of Isaac and Ishmael. 
What do we learn from Isaac? Let's read verses 8 to 12. Let's, let's carry on reading. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So back then, babies were weaned, uh, as in they started eating solid food around the age of kind of two or three years old. So that's the moment when, when Isaac's now coming of age. He's no longer a little baby, he's a toddler. And, th- and so uh, Abraham has this huge feast to celebrate. Hey, look at my son. And it starts to become clear to his other son, Ishmael, that Isaac is the chosen one. Ishmael is probably about kind of 12, 13 years old at this time. Back in Genesis 16, it was said that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man, if you remember that. And then it went on to say that he would be hostile to his brothers. Well, here he is. A 13-year-old boy looming over this tiny little toddler. It's a little bit like, I guess, Simeon's around that age. So Simeon looming over one of the Globe Minis kids. I mean, Simeon would never do that because he's such a sweet kid. But, but that's the sort of image you have, right? This big kind of teenager looking over this little child. And he's mocking him. That word literally there is Isaac. He's isaac King Isaac. See, the laughter found in Sarah and Abraham have been turned into scorn and mockery and contempt towards God's promised child. And again, you see a lot of mess coming through. Sarah sees her son being mocked and scorned. So she tells Abraham, look, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Get them out of my sight. She rises up to defend her son. Abraham is distressed because his other son is now being sent away. This is a real painful moment of fracture in Abraham's camp. But in this mess, God wants us to show us once again that God protects his children. He protects his children who are mocked. God is saying, God says, the big thing, God says, I will protect my promise and my people. And that means he will protect his promised offspring when they're mocked. See, here's the problem. Ishmael is not only mocking his half-brother Isaac, but he's actually mocking God's promise. He's looking at God's promise with contempt, and that is a dangerous thing to do. God will not stand for that. But as we know, we, we all know, though, as we follow Jesus, as we trust in him, this can and does happen to us, doesn't it? We see it in our culture. People mock and scorn what we believe. You might have faced that even this week. Truths of the Bible are ridiculed more and more. Christians are often mocked for being backward and old-fashioned, not with the times, for being judgmental. It's really not a nice feeling. There was a, there was a moment in my life when I was mocked, and it was really not a pleasant experience. I was 10 years old, so it's a long time ago, so it's okay. Um, my cousin from Korea, he sent me this little pencil case. It's like a tartan thing with a pink zip on it, and it said, I love Jesus on the side. Uh, and my sister got one as well. She was like, oh, she went to school and she took it there. And I thought, okay, this is cool. I'll, I'll take it. I need a pencil case. I'll take it to school with me. And I went to a so-called Christian school. Um, we, did, like, we did Bible verses at assembly. And as soon as I walked in, actually thinking about the design now, maybe my cousin sent it as a joke. I don't know. Anyway. But I, anyway, I walked in and I, I was like, I was, yeah, holding it with my books. And as soon as I walked into the classroom, one of them cottoned on. And they started saying, oh, Mike's got an I Love Jesus pencil case. And it started spreading around the classroom. 
And at break time, before I knew it, there were people in different year groups coming up to me saying, do you have an I Love Jesus pencil case? With a little look of scorn and mocking in their face. And after a while, I just said, I, I don't. I felt so alone, weak, isolated, attacked. I hated that feeling of being mocked. I went home and I got really angry with my mom. She, she didn't even have, she had no idea that I even took that pencil case to school. Bless her. But that is the thing. When we're mocked, it can cause us to lose confidence. We start to wonder, is it really worth it to stand for this? We feel small and helpless like this little baby Isaac who felt this Ishmael looming over him. But here's what God says. I protect my children of promise. Perhaps you're here thinking this afternoon, I'm, I kind of want to follow Jesus, but I'm not sure. Perhaps you sense there is a huge cost. You feel like people that you know will turn on you and mock you for becoming a Christian. But God says, look, don't worry. I protect my children who are mocked. See, he turns, to, he turns to Abraham and he says, look, listen to your wife, Sarah. She's right. Isaac is the child of promise. Your name is going to be reckoned. Your name is going to be made through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4. Through Isaac, we will see God's great plan to gather a multitude of people to the promised land to be blessed by God. It will be through him. That is what God is doing. God wants to make sure that it's clear, I will protect my promised child, Isaac, from any mockery. And for us today, this means that we can be confident to know God protects his promise for those who are in Christ, those who are the descendants, the great, great, great descendants of Isaac. It doesn't mean that we don't face any mockery or hardships in our lives today. We will, for sure. But Jesus says that those who follow him, he reminds us that we will face hardship and persecution. But when that happens, God makes it clear my promises are certain. Jesus says, as he leaves his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. That is his promise to us. That he'll that he make sure that the promises of God will come to pass and that we will stand alongside Abraham and Isaac in the eternal promised land, gathered in the presence of God with all the multitude of God's people together in eternity. What do I wish somebody had told me age 10? I wish they had told me that it's worth standing with Jesus, that I should have boldly said, yes, I do love Jesus. To remember, he's with you. No matter how much you're mocked and scored, if you're trusting in God's promises, he's with you, and he's going to take you and carry you home. God will protect his promise and his people so that we can stand with him one day, face to face, under his blessing. So rest in that great protector. So what about Ishmael? What do we learn from him? Let's read on, verses 13. Onwards, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and he became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. 
Here's a big thing we learn from, from Ishmael, I think. That God sends a warning to those who mock God's promise. God warns those who mock. Ishmael is a reminder of what happens when we mock and scorn God's promise. Remember back in chapter 12, God said to Abraham, he will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And that's what Ishmael is in danger of doing right now. As he mocks Isaac. So he gets sent away. Instead of being alongside Abraham with the promise, he's now banished outside wandering in the desert. And they soon run out of supplies and they're in desperate situation. And in the lowness of this moment, Ishmael and Hagar are in tears. They have nowhere else to turn to. And this acts as a warning that those who, mocks God, who mock God's promise will end up outside of God's blessing, where it is a dry, parched land of despair and no hope. But the amazing thing about God is this. As God warns, he shows his grace. This is the beauty of the God that we believe in. There is still an opportunity for mockers to turn back to him because nobody is beyond the reach of his grace and mercy. See, even though Ishmael was not the child of promise, in his desperate cries for help, God hears. See, Ishmael, that name, actually contains the words God hears. Ishmael seems to have come to realize the gravity of mocking God's promise. I think in the way I read it, his cries, he has a heart of repentance. That is why in verse 16, it says Hagar was sobbing, but verse 17, God heard the boy crying. He hears the cries of the boy, and then you hear these words of comfort. Do not be afraid. Those are words that God says countless times to his people throughout Scripture. And through Ishmael being rescued, we again see a glimpse of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham was told that he would be a father to many nations. And Ishmael is a part of that. We've seen a couple of times, even in this uh, verse 13, Ishmael is going to be made a great nation. But Abraham was also told that he would be the source of blessing to all these peoples. Currently, Ishmael and Hagar are not there. They're outside of the blessing of God. But then there's that hint, yet again, that God scatters onto this passage. That God will fulfill this part of the promise to Abraham too. See, through Ishmael's cry of repentance, turning to God, they, he and Hagar together, they start to have a foretaste of the blessings of God. Because God lifts up their eyes and he shows them a well. See, in a desert, you can imagine how a well is a picture of life. Not only that, then God is with this boy as he grows up, verse 20. See, remember that Ishmael is of Egyptian descent. His mother is Egyptian, who then goes on to marry an Egyptian here in this passage. And when we think of Egypt, we often think, oh, bad place, enemies of God. Except later on in the book of Isaiah, this is what it says in chapter 19, verse 25. God says, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. See, Egypt would one day become one of those nations that would come to worship God on Mount Zion because that blessing that comes through Abraham is going to be fulfilled, and we see a hint of it here. See, people, see God is so gracious that people you would expect to be, on, be way beyond God's promise, God says, no, they're not. It's like the Samaritan woman at the well who encounters Jesus. She was Samaritan. They were enemies of God, of God, of God's people. They mocked God's people, the promised people of God. She was also a woman who was trying to find her salvation through relationship with all sorts of men. Her eyes and her heart were far from God's promise. And yet she encounters Jesus and he opens her eyes to see the well that brings eternal life. 
A woman who was seen as an enemy of God, outside of his blessing, comes to be blessed by him. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. See, if you're sitting here aware that in your life that you've been a God mocker, and trust me, many of us have been in the past, that you've stood against him, that you've challenged him. I used to be one of those guys. If you, or if you're sitting on the fence and you're thinking, perhaps God might never accept me, then know this. No one is beyond God's grace and mercy. You can turn to the God who says, look, lift up your eyes and see the well that I provided for you. The well that brings eternal life. Look and see Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what? When Jesus was hanging on the cross dying for you, Loads of people came and mocked him and scorned him. They shouted at him, look, save yourself, get down from the cross, come on. And he could have done, but he didn't. Because he wanted to protect his people. He could have rained down judgment on them, but he didn't. Do you know what he did instead? <laughs> he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That is the heart of God right there. He is so merciful even to those who mock him. See, he wants to fulfill the promise to Abraham in full. The promise that Abraham will be a blessing to all peoples in the world, even to someone like Ishmael. So we need to listen to the warning. Look, don't stay as a mocker of God, but turn to him before it's too late, that you might know the fullness of the promises and blessings of God today, to know that you have life with Jesus. Um, not sure we've got enough time for the last one. Just, yeah, I, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there because of time. Um, just to say, if you, if you do have time, read it at home. It's a funny old passage, but the key point there is that God is protecting his promise to provide land. Beersheba is the first bit of land that Abraham gains um, as, he, as he sees the promise unfold. Um, and it's a wonderful blessing that God provides for him. Um, Beersheba means oath. And it's, it's like God, Abraham's swearing to him that, uh, to Abimelech, that this is my land that God has given to me. And here he goes, it's a wonderful scene in verse 33. You see Abraham plant a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, the first plot of land he gets in the promised land. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And we see Abraham grow from this, this horrible thing that he does in chapter 20 to one who's stepping out in faith, trusting in the eternal God. And that is what we see in the, in the last bit. So um, if you do have time, have a, have a look at that. But I'm sorry, it's just such a big chunk. We've had to kind of um, stop there. But, but look, this is the, the big thing that I want us to remember from these passages, from these various scenes, is remember that God is the great protector of his promise and his people. He protects his promise through the doubts that we go through, through any mocking that we experience, through opposition. God guarantees and proves time and time again that you can keep trusting in him. Let's do that. No matter what we face, let's keep trusting in the God who says to us, look, I will, I will, I will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a merciful God, a gracious God, who is the great protector of his promise and his people. Despite the ugliness of our hearts, despite, despite our doubts and our failings, you keep pointing us to you to say, you can trust me, you can trust me. Despite the, the mockery that comes on us, where we start to wonder, is it worth it? You keep saying, you can trust me, I'm protecting you, I'm protecting my promise. Father, would you enable us by the power of your spirit 
to live in utter trust of who you are, to know that you are the great protector of your people and your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.